This is the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast, where we bring on the experts to teach you the golden nuggets of real estate investing so you can escape the rat race and start living life on your terms. Now, here's your host, Dalen Hazel. Hey, what's up, guys? And welcome back to another episode of the show. I think you're going to enjoy this interview with D. Brock. He is a beginner, but also he's got some experience under his belt. So he's not too far out of reach from the first time beginner, and he's still relatable to the more experienced investor. He's got 13 homes in his portfolio and some storage units, and he's just rocking and rolling. He was on the Real Estate Rookie podcast over the summer with Bigger Pockets. And so he has a lot to share when it comes to finding hard money lenders, finding deals, doing the Burr method and wholesaling, and just jumping into a new asset class. He's recently ventured into storage units. So he's a great interview here. We're going to get to the show shortly, but as you know, I want to mention today's golden nugget of the day. Today's golden nugget is make sure to know your investor DNA. An investor DNA is what you as an investor are best at. So uh, this is like a prelude to a future episode where we dive into the investor DNA more in depth. But for example, my investor DNA is I like to have you know three bedroom brick rental properties because one, they're lower maintenance and you can get a higher quality tenant. For example, I found out pretty soon in my journey that I did not like the high headache, you know, high turnover type rentals in the not so good areas. So that's part of my investor DNA that um, if I find a property like that, I will sell it instead of keep it. And so that's something I had to learn. And um, that's something that uh, our guest today has done a really good job about is finding his investor DNA, finding what he's good at. So we're going to uh, dive into the episode soon here, but I just wanted to mention find your investor DNA because it's going to cut out a lot of the noise and the shiny object syndrome that you have in your life. And it's not its not bad to settle on one strategy and ignore everything else. In fact, it's a good thing. And that's what D. Brock did. Um, and then he finds, he finds a good time to transition into a different asset class. Uh, once he's mastered single family, for example, he moves on to storage units. And so... I'm excited to get into this one, but that is the gold nugget of the day. Thanks for being here, guys, and enjoy the interview with D. Brock. Welcome to the show, D. How are you today? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm fabulous. Thanks for asking. And we're excited to have you on. I heard you on the Bigger Pockets Rookie Podcast. I know that was a big deal for you to be on there. And I listen to that show all the time. So I thought, hey, let's have D on so he can share his story. And so Let's start the show by saying, when was your aha moment in real estate? When did the light bulb click on for you and say, this is the path for me? Uh, That's a great question. I think that probably when I had three houses or so um, was my aha moment because I I work a lot. And the downside of that is I'm away from my family um, more than I, I want. My kids all play sports, every single one of them. And so most of the time, sports or on the weekends. And so my whole goal is to, uh, you know, I started seeing how I could start getting residual income from these houses. So I figured if I would get some money from that, that I would actually be able to escape and go to their games and be more present 
And so when I started seeing all that extra income come in from the cash flow, and then also I manage my own property. So I pay myself 15%, you know, so it's a thousand dollar rent. That's 150 bucks for one house, not to mention my cash flow, which is normally, you know, give or take a hundred bucks. So that's $250 from just one house. So then I was like, man, I started doing the math. I was like, well, if I could get X amount of houses at 250 each, I mean, I could literally make, you know, 10 grand a month, five grand a month, just doing nothing, which, but most importantly was going to the kids games and being present. So that was my aha moment. Yeah, that's a great way to think of it, uh, for sure. I think a lot of investors get into it for the free time. Most people I've spoken with have a family, and so they they see how they want to be more involved with their family, and so they they see real estate as an avenue to get there. And so that's awesome. So where, how did you start? You started with three houses, but I'm sure you didn't really start with three houses. So how did you get those three houses, and then explain kind of where where you are now? Yeah, so my the very first house I got was. I bought with my brother in good old Glenpool, Oklahoma. We both went into it not knowing what to expect. A little bit of fear. I think actually there was a lot of fear. That's really why we went together was we had this game plan that we would have this emergency fund. And if something were to happen and we had issues, that it was easier to split it amongst each other versus uh, separately. One of us taking the full, full blow. So we got started that way. Um, and it turned out pretty good. Um, I think you hear horror stories of people saying that, you know, I, I had a rental house and it was the worst. Oh my gosh, I'll never do it again. Sure. I, I guess that's possible. Um, you know, but we just we did a really good job vetting um, our tenants. And so far we've had a good amount of tenants that pay, pay on time. It's not a headache when people pay on time. It's not a headache when you look up on the first and it's there. Um, so that house went fairly well. So then I went ahead and um, my mom actually was going to buy a house. So what we did was her current house, I ended up, because uh, I, I was on the loan with her on that house, we ended up renting that house and that gave me the second uh, second house. Um, and so once we did that, we got her in her current house and, um, and that just started the whole process of buying properties. That's awesome. So you kind of got into it unconventionally, you, you know, a lot of people, they just get started putting 25% down on a property, but you, you kind of finagled your way into the industry. I think that's awesome. And so where, where, how have you scaled up from there? Cause I know you have more than three properties now. Yeah. So I scaled by, I bought a couple more properties um, after that uh, because I saw it was, you know, how much luck I was having. So then I tried a hard money lender. Um, that was interesting. Um, and then, um, you know, another way I did it was, you know, so for some people who just don't have cash available. You know, some people go, well, it'd be easy if I had 10,000 or 20,000. Um, but you know, you can, you can get a, a line of credit, you know, and that's what I did was I opened up a line of credit with, um, um my local credit union. And then I used a hard money lender um, out there. Uh, it's Defiance Capital, Jake Lasco. He's amazing. And he only does Tulsa. So for people who live in Tulsa, he'll do specialize in just Tulsa. But what's nice is, you know, they'll do, I forget how much money down, 15% down. Well, on a $100,000 house, 15% down is 15 grand. And so people go, well, I don't have 15 grand. So 
I'm done. I guess I can't do it. Well, take out a line of credit. You know, I got a line of credit with Tinker for 30 grand. I take out that 15 grand, for example, and I buy that house. And in three months, um, I would refinance it with Tulsa Federal. And then I would reimburse my $15,000 back into my line of credit. And I'm back to zero. Um, so then I realized how easy it was. And then I just started getting more houses, getting more houses. And it worked out really well. Um, and then obviously COVID hit. It was difficult. It was different. But I'd only been in the business for, you know, a year. I mean, I didn't know any better. So, but after that, and I started wholesaling and we can get into details on that and then started getting me more houses. So I'm not stressing as much as most people are. You know, I feel like a lot of people maybe have given up since horror houses are so expensive. Yeah. So let's go by baby steps on how you basically got to where you're at. So you mentioned a strategy in which you used a line of credit for the down payment and then hard money lending for the remainder, the lion's share of the loan. I think that's an awesome strategy, you know, because a lot of hard money lenders, when you're starting out, they want a significant portion. They want skin in the game from you. And so if you don't have that, you can get a line of credit on your personal residence or maybe a farm you have or any equipment you own. You can get that from family and friends. So there are ways to front that down payment and then and then like you said refinance and pay everybody off um so that's a cool strategy any other tips you have when coming into contact with like hard money lenders because i said i heard you say that that experience was interesting were there any setbacks or tips of advice you'd you'd give to somebody well yeah um so the hard money loan was interesting because the first when I tried, so I did some research. I did research on almost everything that I did and that I've done, but I, um, I went with the hard money lender that was, I wouldn't say the cheapest, but I mean, that obviously will, you'll sway towards someone who's going to save you the most amount of money based off their fees. Um, and then it was just a disaster from there. I mean, they just, they didn't communicate. Things kept changing each time I talked on the phone. I mean, it got to a point where I actually had to start recording the calls with this hard money lender because, you know, his story kept changing. Um, and then he would say, I'm going to call you back and he never call you back. So it was just a disaster. Um, so my advice when it comes to hard money lender is I would go off for referrals, you know, and there's not, I don't know if there's, unless you're, you're, you have a, a connection with people who are doing the same thing. I don't know if you just go to a random Joe and say, Hey, what hard money lender are you using? Cause people don't use them. Um, but I, I, I got one. He actually reached out to me on bigger pockets, which I think is a great source to go to. There's so much stuff to learn there. Um, and you know, the difference between if people don't know what a hard money lender is, the difference between a hard money lender and a normal conventional lender is a hard money lender is higher, higher rates. Um, you know, more fees. But what I liked about that versus a conventional is a conventional loan, you got to provide your income. They got to go through a process. It takes 30 days to close and it just takes forever. Um, and a hard money lender, you know, Jake Lasco, the company I use with Defiance is I didn't have to do all that. They pulled my credit, which is not a big deal. They didn't ask for proof income. They didn't ask for bank statements. They didn't ask for anything. They just take your word for it. And once you build like a portfolio with them, then you just call them and say, Hey, I'm buying this house at XYZ. And they just, uh, they send over, they wire the money over. Um, so convenience is, is a huge thing when it comes to hard money lenders. So build that relationship 
and it makes it 10 times easier to buy a house. Um, so that's what I've been, I've been doing lately. It's really easy. Yeah. Referrals have worked for me with the hard money lender. I've used the same one since I got my start and we've done four or five deals together and I never have to worry about the money showing up or any integrity issues. And it's because I started by asking the biggest players in my market, who do you mm-hmm. use? And then they directed me towards this individual. And so I have no need to look anywhere else, but I know the struggle of, you know, I can imagine the struggle of having somebody that you're depending on to close the deal or to, to get your rehab money. And then it, you have to jump through a lot of hoops. So, yeah, it was my first big purchase too. I had a, I think yeah. it was a $30,000 rehab, I had a lot of money invested for my, uh, my escrow, um, or earnest money, not escrow. So there's a lot of money on the line. But the nice thing about this hard money lenders is we tell any house we buy, we tell them it's a cash deal with a private lender. So it's mm-hmm. submitted as cash. So obviously when a, when a seller's looking at offers, they go, well, let's go with the cash deal. So um, yeah. that helps also. And your integrity is on the line. So you want to make sure it closes. Yeah. You are saying yeah, cash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a big deal for sellers. Um Talk about how you were finding those deals in the early days. I know this was just last year or whatever, but talk about how you were sourcing those deals. Uh, well, I mean, it was just MLS. That's what it was. I was just jumping on the MLS every morning. Um, I uh, I would get up at it was five o'clock in the morning, which I'm not a morning person. It was brutal, but you know. You could lay there and you say option A is I can sleep in and, you know, and retire working or I could get up two hours early and uh, and retire early. What's more important, that extra two hours of sleep? No, it's not. So I would get up uh, early um, and eventually gets to a point where it's easier. It's still really, really difficult, but it gets a little easier. But anyway, so I'd get up, look at the MLS and then I would... uh I would, if I found a house, I would actually send it to my, my agent. So what I would do is my credit union is Tulsa Federal. So they always do refinances. Okay. And they refinance at 80%. So if I found a house that I liked, um, I would email my real estate agent and I would tell, ask her, Hey, what is the, um, what is her value on this house? Okay. And she would say a hundred grand. And so I would say, all right, well, it looks like it needs, 10 grand of repairs. So if it's worth a hundred grand and Tulsa Federal is going to give me 80%, that's 80,000 minus the thousand for repairs. It puts me at 70,000 minus five grand for closing costs, you know? So then I would make the offer based off of that. Hmm. And then that's how, and, and here's the thing, I would make 10 offers. I mean, I would legitimately make 10 offers just to get one. Hmm. Um, and that's the closing percentage. So each house, we'd get up, I'd find a house, I'd send it to her, and and we would make an offer sight unseen because I don't have time to go look at every single house. Mm-hmm. But the nice thing is, if someone did offer, because there was times where they would accept your offer, and I was like, ooh, that's exciting. Man, this is a great house. And then I'd get out there and I would see, you know, foundation issues or, um, you know, all kinds of stuff. I tried to, after we made the offers, it was it was interesting. You, you're curious, why was my offer accepted? Um, but, uh, we go out there and some of them we would accept and some of them we wouldn't, but that's how we got started was the MLS. Um, and then after the MLS COVID happened, um, and so houses are really hard to find. I mean, the houses that you would find, you would have to, you'd have to get them early. And in the early ones, you know, people were asking, getting over 
asking price. So it was really difficult to find because it's just like you and I, I mean, we were trying to find houses for rentals. And so everyone was struggling. So then I got into the wholesale business, uh, not, not necessarily trying to be a wholesaler, but trying to find houses. So we did, my wife and I did what's called driving for dollars. If people are interested, you just drive and look at houses that look run down and we wrote down the addresses and then we went home and, and we sent out uh, a letter to every single one of them. And, uh, we had a lot of replies and, uh, we closed some houses that way too. Wow. Obviously your evolution of source and deals went from MLS to taking that into your own hands to try to find the best deals. That's awesome. And I'm curious, going back to those properties that you'd make a sight unseen offer on, how did you get out of the contract if the seller accepted your contract? Did you have like a inspection contingency period there? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, when we would submit our offers, uh, we would submit an offer uh, pending inspection. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also we would, we would submit our offers with, um, you know, a home warranty included. We would... Um, submit with a few things, but yeah, that was our out was just inspection because even if I went and looked at the house and liked it, I would still have someone come in and do a professional inspection. If they came in there and saw that there was, you know, termites, you know, then that would let me out of the, the deal. So, um, it just, it made it easier for her and I and to, to make our offers sight unseen. Um, and, you know, and she was a trooper too. It's Monica Medley. She's awesome. And, you know, her and I had, you know, basically a mutual agreement that we were going to make a lot of offers and she was going to do a lot of work. Um, But she's she's so great at what she does. And she is she knows more about houses and repairs and maintenance than than most people that I know. And so it was perfect for me going in because I didn't know, you know, a ton about houses. And so I'd go out there and she'd be like, oh, D, it needs this, this and this. And it's going to cost this much. And that was perfect because I would be like, okay, well, what do you think we should make an offer on? Uh, and we looked at a house like three weeks ago. And I forget how much it was. I want to say they were asking 125. And after looking at it, she she's she found out the people who actually owned it were investors from Florida, and they had just bought it two months ago. So why they were selling it, who knows? But uh, she's like, what do you think, D? Are you interested? And I was like, yeah, I think I would be interested at like 80 grand. I, was, I think is what it was. And she goes, you should offer him 50. I'm like, oh my gosh. All right. And so, you know, we offered him 50 and, um, you know, unfortunately it ended up actually going for a lot higher. So we didn't get it, but still, uh, it's just good to have an agent that, you know, is on the same page as you. Yeah. You have like a one-stop shop there. And I was always the person who encouraged everyone to be their own agent, get your license yourself and just do it all yourself to save commission and time. But you actually don't really save a lot of money and you don't certainly don't save time um, is what I've found. Uh, I love having now, I'm not an agent anymore. I love having an agent I trust do a lot of that legwork for me because as my mindset and business has shifted to more income producing activities, I allow the professional over there to be the professional and I'm over here doing my thing. So we complement each other. Mm-hmm. So it's awesome you had that one-stop shop there and then she actually encouraged you to make low offers. Yeah, what did you like about being your own agent? Was there a benefit versus, I've, I've thought about it. I mean, I know the bit, I, I would think the positive would be I could go look at a house anytime I want. I mean, what did you think? Yeah, so I haven't actually shared this with a lot of people, but First of all, the reason I got my license was to 
more like speed to lead. And by speed to lead is a term in sales where the first one there usually gets the deal. Or And so if I'm the first person to make an offer because I don't have to ask my agent to make an offer for me, I can just shoot it off. I could look at the house if I wanted to. I can save commissions by paying myself that commission. I can get access to comps on the MLS. Those were some of the reasons I got it. And as I've transitioned to more off-market, focusing on wholesaling, it just doesn't really fit too well with where I'm headed. I'm okay paying somebody 3%. I'm okay with you know not making the offer myself because I don't do a lot of MLS stuff anymore. I'm doing off-market. Mm-hmm. And then comps, I have a software that runs comps for me, so I don't really need the access to the MLS. And that software is called propstream.com. So those are the reasons, I guess, man. And and so a lot of people I know are successful with their license as an investor, but I just found I didn't need it. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that um, there's pros and cons to it. Um, I feel like, uh, you know, the, the pro would be to get, you'd be the first person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I just feel like, you know, you're going to be putting more work in. You'll have to do more, you'll have to write up your own offers. Um, and that was another thing when we made offers, we, we figured we would make an offer, including home warranty, pending inspection and 5% closing costs included. So I, I wanted to come out of pocket as least as possible. Yeah. So, um, that saved me a little bit of money there. Yeah. There is so much paperwork and being an agent and I just hated that. I, I love my little one page, you know, off market contract, just sign the line here. Yeah. I yeah. have to worry about an eight page Missouri real estate commission contract. <laughs> Hey, let me ask you this because I had a house that was under contract that fell through. Um, it was a, when I tried to sell it to my, I wanted to purchase it off market. And then 20 days in, uh, they, they backed out. They said they changed their mind. What would you do in that situation? So in that situation, um, you were selling a house and I was buying their house. Oh, you were buying their house. And so, they backed out. They said it's not for sale after yeah. 20 days. Okay. And so was there any, honestly on air right now, I can't, can't really answer that question. I'm not actually sure what you do. Okay. Did you, was it with an agent? No, it was just individual, individual seller. I mean, I found it off market okay. and uh, went and found, and then we had a 60 day closing and then 20 days in, they said they changed their mind. Um, so, and so if you were under contract, I mean, that is a legally binding contract. You have the right to pursue them legally, you know, in court. <laughs> Not everyone will. Um, you yeah. certainly should get your earnest money back if you had any. And then what what typically happens in that scenario is they've, they've shopped your offer and they found a better offer. Mm-hmm. So you can actually file at the court level. It's called a, a notice of interest, NOI. That way, when that seller tries to sell that property, they can't sell it to anybody but you. Mm. And you pay a small fee and it basically clouds that title to where if they're ever going to sell it, they have to sell it to you. I've heard of people doing that, and especially in the wholesaling business. Yeah. Notice of interest. Yeah. Someone told me about that. Someone said something about a cloud. Mm-hmm. And I asked the um, title office, can we cloud the title? That's what I told them. She's yep. like, what the heck does that mean? But notice of interest sounds a little more professional. Yeah. And that's when a competent title company really comes into play um, when they can get creative because what they might tell you is no, it can't be done. But sure enough, there's people doing it. 
And mm-hmm. that's just the vehicle that a lot of people in my mastermind have used and taught me notice of interest. Sure. Make sure to check that out next time. If it's a super profitable deal, you might want to do that. If if you're going to make like three to five grand on it, is it really worth your trouble? Maybe your reputation to do that? I'm not sure. You'll have to yeah. decide that for yourself. But good question, man. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, uh, where are you headed? Like how many doors do you have? And have you transitioned into any other asset classes than single family homes? Uh, so great question. I am, I'm closing on two this month. So, uh, that will put me at 13 houses. And then I have a storage unit that I bought earlier this year. It's a 19 unit storage facility. Um, and so I have that going for me. So that's, that's where I've kind of gone a little bit off the path of houses. Um, cause I've heard good things about storage units and so far so good. I mean, I don't have, you know, uh, toilets or any leaky roofs. I mean, it's just a storage unit. Uh, so the only, I, I, everything has pros and cons. The only con is, you know, just instead of having to manage one house, I got to manage 19 uh, storage units. And then most of them pay perfectly fine. Uh, a few of them are older to where they don't do auto draft. And so then I have, they send in, they mail their checks in. And their checks come in like five days, you know, after the first. That's fine. I would love to definitely find a, another storage unit because I think there's a lot of money that's that comes into it. But yeah, sitting at uh, once I close these two, they'll put me at 13 houses. My goal is 30. That would give me eight houses for this month or this month, this year, um, and that's not including my current house. Uh, my current primary house. We ended up buying a house just two, three months ago, and we're actually remodeling it. And so my current house will turn into an Airbnb. So that would give me 14 houses, but I'm not counting that right now because it's still in the process. That's really awesome. So you've really uh, scaled up from where you are, and this is all just in the last year or two? Yeah, yeah, that would be all in just the, the one year. So I've seen people do it, and... Why not me? I mean, the quicker that I can get all this knocked out, the quicker that I can be present for my kids' full baseball games, their full yeah. football games, their whole basketball games, instead of just showing up for a couple of quarters or two halves or something like that. Yeah, and kids just grow up so fast. So you are you feel like you're on a time clock where you don't want to miss those special moments. I think that's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Talk about mindset because I know behind you, you have like your goal board and you're obviously heavy into mindset. You have to be to get this far. So where, how has your mindset shifted in the last two years? And what would you recommend to somebody looking to grow their mindset? I think that the biggest thing is you need to, I think you need to have a goal and what you're, what you're chasing after. You can't just say this, I'm going to, I'm going to try to buy a house. I mean, you have break it down. How many houses First off, what's your main goal? What are you trying to accomplish? Right? Retire early. Okay. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, I need to buy 30 houses. Okay. Well, how are you going to buy 30 houses? I'm going to put in some offers. Okay. How many offers are you going to put in? You know, so you got to break it down almost to the penny of exactly what you're going to do. Um, but you just got to find what's your, what is your mindset and how are you going to get there? And then hold yourself accountable. Um, you know, I have the board. Um, now that we're moving, it's not up on the wall. It's kind of a blank 
wall, really. Um, I had a, a spreadsheet that I created that kept track of how many offers I made each week. I had to make a certain amount of offers um, that month to get to where I want to go. Um, and so, you know, I, I think I said it in that podcast with Bigger Pockets is a lot of people will wait, you know, they'll have this goal. I'm going to do this this year. And then November rolls around and they go, oh man, I still haven't done that. I need to really get down and, and get after it. But by that time, the year's almost over. So it's good to have it in front of you the entire time so that you can, you know, hold yourself accountable. And, you know, it's kind of like an accountability board. It's just mine is a goal that I, a board that I put on the wall. So when I come into my office every morning, I see it. Um, and I know where I'm at. I know every single month on the first, when I go through my, my quote unquote payroll to find out who's paid and who hasn't, I monthly check my net to end, my, um, year to date, my net income, how many houses I'm at, how I'm getting per month. And so I know where I'm at. And then how far, most importantly, how far away I am to hitting my goal to where I can financially be free and go and, and spend more time with my family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever you track grows. I mean, so I have a bookmark on my computer where I track my net worth. I've got my goals. Um, I write them down as well, put them on my wall. You just want to... <laughs> it's so interesting how our brains work because we'll gravitate towards things that we see repetitively. And so if you're seeing politicians fight online repetitively, that's what you're going to think about and dwell on. But if you see your goals, you see where you're headed, you see the the free time you're going to gain, you envision that, then it's going to just expand and you're going to, uh, I believe, attract that back to yourself. There's there's no way that can't happen. It, it's a law. And, and so that, that's great advice about your mindset. Um, yeah, I have think, a friend who, go ahead. I have a friend that I, I work with that is young and he wants to get into, uh, houses. And so it's probably going on six, seven months. And, you know, I keep telling him, what do you, have you, have you found a house yet? And he keeps saying, I want to do it. I want to do it. So I think that's a prime example to most people. We procrastinate. We put it off, you know. It's like that saying where someone goes, man, I'm going to, I'm going to quit procrastinating. I'm going to start tomorrow. You know, it's like, okay. Um, but I feel like if you're sitting here thinking it's too hard, I can't do it. We'll just, you know, set a small goal, you know, this for a month. What are you going to do in a month? Well, I'm going to start doing research. I'm going to watch, you know, one bigger pockets video a, a week, you know, or I'm going to, uh, watch, you know, a certain amount of podcast a week. Do something because by the time you look up, it's going to be November and the year is going to be almost over. And, uh, it's a big difference. So sorry. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, let's go back to finding deals because we talked about how you're finding them on the MLS. Talk about more of the driving for dollars and where you're headed going forward because you and I both know that the best deals are not found on the MLS typically? Yeah, I mean, MLS is, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's probably still some deals on there, but going forward, I just feel like your your best deals are, are off market. Um, and the thing about it is, I got lucky on my first letter. I mean, just, I had a person who sold me multiple houses. I mean, it worked out really well. Um, that's not going to happen. I would assume, because I'm not a uh, 
like you to where I do a lot of wholesaling. So maybe it's a good question for you, but um, you know, I feel like you have to, you got to go after it one, two, three times. Cause the very first guy that I sold, the very first guy uh, that I bought off market, he told me that he got letters every single day. Mm -hmm. Um, And he just said, I got yours. And I just, I just happened to give you a call. And so, you know, it was, it was really timing too. I mean, I think that it's important to be in their face to where they, they think about it. They think about you um, because if not, they're just going to go with someone else. So, I mean, I don't know how often you send your letters out. Do you, do you have a follow-up process where you send it to them every month? I mean, what do you, what do you do to stay, stay relevant? Yeah. Conventional advice is you need to hit somebody seven to 12 times with your marketing message to convert to a lead. And sadly, most sales professionals maybe get one, two times. And that includes follow-up touches. So you don't have to send 12 letters to the same individual. It also includes text messages, calls, voicemails, just a touch. And, And so I don't typically go to 12, but I try to do seven. So I have like a sequence of letters or postcards that I send to pretty much everyone that is, I think is the most highly motivated to sell. That's if I'm doing direct mail to that individual. I try to send at least seven pieces of paper, whether that's a letter or postcard. And then if it's a calling, if it's a lead, I'm trying to call, I'll try to add up to seven as far as calls, texts, and voicemails. And that gives me the best chance possible. Now, obviously, I'm not going to call somebody seven times if they told me never call me on the first one. Um, mm-hmm. I'm methodical with it. I'm smart with it. I'm, I focus my marketing on people who have a high likelihood of selling, like I said, but also who want, maybe have a desire to to sell. And so that's my advice, man. I mean, it's not down to a T or anything, but I try to do seven touches. But has there ever been a, a time where you sent someone one letter, two letters, three letters, and then, you know, maybe they said, man, I got your fourth letter. I just had to call you. Oh my gosh. Yes. So the company I use, I do a letter for the first touch. It's a nice, you know, formal longer letter. And then after that, there's seven postcards and the postcards all have different marketing copy. One might be sell your house without cleaning it out. Another might be sell fast for cash today. So whatever somebody struggling with the marketing message that resonates best with them they'll at least get hit with that. They may not like my no commissions postcard, but they might like my sell for cash postcard. You see? Mm-hmm. And and then just brand awareness. So I redirect them to my website. They can see my logo there that I am a legit company. And I think that goes a long way. Yeah. Do you do you have, and sorry, I'm asking you a question, but do you have a website? Do you use a CRM or what do you use with to direct your business to your site? Yeah. And this is a, you know, don't, don't be afraid to ask questions. This is a great discussion on wholesaling and how to find deals. So, um, when somebody gets my card, they have, it has my URL on it. And so I can track, you know, who's gone to my website. I use the carrot.com websites that most investors are familiar with. And then once they fill out a form on my website or they call, they automatically get added to my CRM re simply. uh, And that's, R-E-S-I-M-P-L-I. And so that way they can um, 
keep, I can keep track of that lead there and it's all connected. You know, most apps have integration nowadays. So that's what I've found is been able to keep me, you know, centered in my business, keep a flow there. Yeah. I, I feel like, well, not, I feel like with the first house I bought, um, off market, I'm trying to remember exactly the details on it, but I want to say I, I text them first and got a reply that said they weren't interested or I called them. But either way, the first time the um, wife replied to me and said they weren't interested. And then so the second time I reached out to them was by complete accident. It was on the CRM that I was using FreedomSoft um, that sent out a text. And yeah, that's what it was. And then so the text um, came back from that software you know, hey, I'm interested, give me a call. So that's what it was. Cause I sent an individual, I was driving for dollars and I sent a text from my cell phone and got a reply with no, not interested. That came from his wife. And then the second text by complete accident, I didn't even send it to them was when he replied. So it's a prime example of, you know, I wouldn't let someone say no, you know, throw you off and, and, you know, cause you never know what happens in people's lives. You know, right now you might reach out to someone who's current on their mortgage and then, you know, six months from now they're, they're all of a sudden behind and, and that's a perfect person to find them at their, you know, quote unquote pain point, right? They're what's, what's going on with them. So. Exactly. I've gotten so many deals off of just the third or fourth or fifth touch. And I can track that in my system. Like they received this postcard and then they called right after they received that. It's pretty cool. Like human psychology and how that all works. But the point of the matter is you're doing something you're marketing yourself, you're telling others about your business. Even if it's just making a Facebook post, I buy houses, make sure you tell as many people as you can that you buy houses. Yeah. And so the carrot.com or whatever you have, does that track when they reach out to you or text you or go to your website? What were you saying about that? I mean, carrot.com is a done for you website builder for real estate investors and agents. And I only really get to track that if they visit the website. Mm. You know. So I have a a phone number on my website and then I have a different phone number on my letter. So I know if they called me from X number, it's from that website yeah. or letter. And phone numbers are cheap, so try to create a lot of them to have the best insight on your business. Yeah, makes sense. Do you have each postcard have each separate number so you know which postcard oh, they're calling? Absolutely in? not. No. I mean, if I want to get really granular with it, I'll send out a postcard campaign of like two thousand postcards. I'll have a number on that so I can track the effectiveness of that campaign versus campaign B of the same amount of postcards. But I mean, there's a million ways things to track in your business and what I've learned is you don't want to get too bogged down in tracking KPIs, key performance indicators, or else you're not going to do any business. So have yeah. a few KPIs you're tracking, but don't have a ton of KPIs. Yeah. Yeah. It's like overanalyze it. Yeah. You can become a data analyst versus a real estate mm-hmm. investor. Well, uh, D, let's wind down to this last portion of our show. We gave a lot of gold nuggets there for sure. This last part is called the triple threat. And it's the same three questions I ask each guest on the show. What has been the biggest app resource or tool 
that has been the biggest game changer in your business? Biggest game changer? Well, I mean, I do have a, I've gone through a lot of CRMs trying to find out how to manage my properties. And I think the one that I've had the most success is, was, um, it's called Rent Direct. You ever heard of it? No, I haven't. Um, so what I like about it is it tracks all your properties. Um, and then when a property comes available, you just mark it as available and it will uh, post it on all the websites. Facebook is a big one. Um, and then people can set up their automatic payments. Your tenants can pay through, uh, through the website it's, and they can do background checks, credit checks. Um, and then you can, they can pay for their application fee, everything through there. So that's been a big one, uh, for me on that. And then Excel, I'm big, uh, spreadsheet. I think a lot of people, I don't know if a lot of people are, but I love doing spreadsheets. I love the number side of it. I, I like creating something. Um, so that's been a big thing for me was, uh, was the rent direct and, and the spreadsheets. Cool. Does that software rent direct, does it collect rent as well? Yeah, it does. You can set up automatic payments through there. Um, it's it was a big game changer for me. Not everyone uses it. Some people will uh, go to the the bank that I bank with. I, I always try to have the same bank around my houses, um, and I really try to keep all my houses in the same area. But I've got a couple out in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Um, so there's a bank out there, but I try to do the same bank. Um, but uh, yeah, it's all through there. And then uh, you know you can charge the tenant a fee. For paying online, but I mean, that's that's pointless. I mean, it's just getting greedy. I'm not going to charge my tenants more money for paying online. They're actually doing me a favor by paying online. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess there's always people out there looking to get a little extra love. That's just not me. Yeah, cool. So it's like an all-in-one property management yeah. software. So far, it's all-in-one, and I did a lot of searching. I was on those bigger pockets, and there's a post talking about you know the best CRMs, and I went through every single CRM. And finally found that one. So, so far, so good. I'm not saying that will be the end all and the one I'm going to use for forever. Um, but as of right now, it's been perfect. Sweet. Question number two, what has been your biggest learning lesson in the last year? Biggest learning lesson in the last year. The biggest lesson is probably that things are always changing and evolving. And, you know, you're going to have to just adjust to the market. Um, and, and also the fact that I'm still learning. I mean, every single day we're learning, not every day, but you know, you're always learning something. You think you and I spoke in the, in the very beginning talking about how you think you know it all and, uh, or at least you're getting a, an idea of it. And then, you know, you talk to someone who's completely lost and you're like, Oh, that was me a year and a half ago, you know? And then if me and four years will look at me today as, you know, someone who's new. So you're always learning and, I think the key to it is applying it and don't, don't be scared to fail. You know, you're, we're all going to fail. Um, but are you going to be the person that fails and gives up? Or are you going to be the person who fails and, and learns from it and makes yourself better? Because those people that we talked about in the very beginning that had renters and the first renter was just so difficult and I just can't do it. I'm out of the market. Well, those people failed and they quit. Um, instead of being like, okay, well, perfect. What can I do now to make sure that this doesn't happen again? You know? Um, so I think that's the biggest thing I've learned is that you're going to fail. Don't stress so much about it and learn from it. Because the right. thing is, God's got a plan. He's got it all figured out, you know? So 
we're going to get it all figured out together. Yeah. Fail forward. That's what they say. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Question three, our podcast is all about helping others achieve freedom with real estate investing, whether that's financial lifestyle or otherwise. So what does freedom mean to you? I think we talked about the very beginning. Freedom to me is being present. And that is the most important thing to me. And that's why I wake up every morning early and I do what I do because I, you know, I have four kids. I think when I did the podcast, I had, I still had four kids. So I actually, we have another one on the way. So it'll be number five and that will be at the end of this month. Actually, probably in a couple of weeks. Uh, November 15th is probably when we're going to have that child. And so, you know, I want to be present for that kid. Um, and I don't want to make it seem like I'm an absent father. I mean, I just, I, you know, I, I get up when I, when I work at work in the mornings, I get up early and I get home, you know, around six or seven. By that time, the day's almost wound down. And so, but the biggest thing to me, like I said, is being at the sporting events because I remember when I was little, my dad was there all the time and I loved looking up and seeing his face, you know, and I feel like that's the same thing with me. I want to be able to be at their games to where they look up and they go, oh, dad's here. I don't want them to look up throughout the whole game of baseball, nine inning games looking, where's dad? Where's dad? So that's what eats at me. So that is why I do what I do. I know a lot of people do it for money perfectly. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having a happy medium, but I just want to make enough money to where I can wake up every morning and not have to go to work, you know, so and do what I want and not stress about it. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone has what they're going for and you've found that that's the most important thing that you have that goal, that vision in your mind for sure. Well, where can listeners get a hold of you, learn more about you? Oh, I'm not on all these social media things. Um, I'm on Facebook. I mean, I'm on Twitter, but I don't really keep up with Twitter. Uh, you know, Facebook, Bigger Pockets, that's really where I'm uh, most active. Um, a lot of people uh, from my Bigger Pockets posts have sent me messages on Facebook Messenger. So that's where I'm active. Uh, if you have any questions and um, need any advice, I mean, uh, I'd be more than happy to to try to talk to people as much as I can to help answer any questions and get you through where I was at at that point. Awesome. And for those interested in listening to the rookie podcast, um, D was on episode 67 of the real estate rookie podcast, and that's hosted by bigger pocket. So make sure you check that out after this one. If you haven't already. Nice plug. Yeah. Well, awesome, D. It's been a pleasure to have you on and see you growing. And it's always inspiring to see somebody who started just, you know, one or two years ago and you already have 13 properties and 19 storage units. I think you're well on your way to achieving that number where it makes sense for you to spend much more time with your family. I think that's very yeah, admirable. True. So thanks for being on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review. And tune in next week for the next episode.